0: Looking to create wealth in commercial property, but don't know how to do it? Tired of negative gearing and not getting ahead? Well, you're in the right place. You're listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Welcome to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. My name is Andrew Bean, and I'm here with the founder of Revolve Commercial and my trusty co host, Mish Daniel. How are you, Mish?
1: A great day, Andrew. Every day above uh, ground is a fantastic day.
0: Yes, I can definitely agree with you that every day I'm walking on ground is a very good day. (laughs) It (laughs) is. All right, So, who do we have today?
1: So, today we have Daniel Watts, and Daniel Watts is with a rapid building inspection, whom we often reach out to when we're looking at properties, when we've gone to contract. Daniel and his team come in, and they do the building and pest inspections.
0: And what should the listeners listen out for, Mish?
1: I would strongly entice the listeners to listen out to right in the middle of this uh, podcast where Daniel talks about some very entertaining – Horrors? (laughs) Horrors. (laughs) Horrors. that they've come across. So some very interesting experiences that their team has had to go through.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I figure the things that we actually touch on are what's actually involved in the building and pest inspection, what qualifications someone needs, who is responsible for doing it, the technology that the building and pest inspection guys are actually using or girls are using, what's actually in the report, how to read between the lines of the report. That's a big one, isn't it, Mish?
1: It certainly is, absolutely. That's a huge time saver. And just knowing what you're looking at, I think, is very, very important. Also, I think other points of importance is to know what building and pest covers and what it doesn't cover. So mm. in building and pest, it's doing exactly that. Building and pest is not going to do your specialist areas.
0: Yeah. And we also talk about, like, as we said, the horrors. Some of these horrors will blow your mind. We touch on meth contamination, which is, it actually sounds like it's a reasonably common problem that most people actually don't get checked. We also touch on the big ticket items that come up in uh, most of these inspections, uh, rules per state. And if you listen all the way through, Daniel actually does share they have a corporate discount referral, which you definitely want to be checking out. This is the way that you could be getting dollars into your pocket by referring his company. And then he's also got a building and pest checklist, free giveaway for us as well.
1: Which is a great bonus. It's just 10 points of things that you need to look out for, things that you need to know.
0: All right. Without any further ado, anything else you want to mention, Mish?
1: I think we've pretty much covered it, Andrew. This has been a pretty full-on interview, so yeah.
0: All right, well, let's get him in.
1: Absolutely. Come on in, Daniel.
0: Can't find any good deals? Revolve Commercial has you covered with the hottest commercial property picks every month delivered free straight to your inbox. Subscribe today at www.revolvecommercial.com.au. Sit back, save time, and have the deals delivered directly to you from Revolve Commercial. Welcome to the show, Daniel. How are you, mate?
2: I'm good, thanks, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, buddy.
0: Mate, so can you just tell us a little bit about your background in the
2: building industry? I started out and did my apprenticeship as a a carpenter and joiner in the army way back in the mid-90s. And then from there, I started my own business for a while and then moved into the international aid and development sector until about five or six years ago, I operated in that aid and development sector. And then about five or six years ago, we started rapid building inspections along with a couple of friends of mine.
0: Wow. So how long were you in the army for?
2: Yeah, it's been about six years in the army as a a tradesman and a combat engineer. Would you recommend it? Yeah, if that's what you want to do, I would recommend it. It's, It's suited for some and not for others. I would say. Fair enough. (laughs) All
0: right, mate. So we've got you here today to talk about uh, the building and pest inspection process, which is one of the big ticket items in a commercial investment when you're doing due diligence. So could you just tell us what the difference is between a residential building inspection compared to a commercial building inspection?
2: Yeah, no worries. They both um, are inspected to a very similar Australian standard that regulates the inspection industry. It's the same standard, just with a few differences uh, or, or annexes that deal with commercial buildings rather than just residential. But some of the common differences include residential properties are typically constructed to different standards in a building code, and they'll often use different materials and construction techniques when you compare that to, say, a commercial building, and a commercial building will often be tilt slabs, engineered metal roofing members with girders, lots of mezzanine type levels. The finishes on a commercial property typically aren't as important as they are on a residential property. And one of the key things to remember, whether it's a commercial or a residential, is that when an inspector is conducting his inspection, the standards that he inspects to requires him to compare that building with another building of a similar age and building type. So in the commercial industry, there are, are so many different construction types out there. Sometimes it can be difficult to assess the, the age of the structure. So obviously, you, you need someone who's quite familiar with commercial buildings, not just residential buildings, so they're assessing the, the property correctly. So it's important that the properties are scrutinised according to, to those standards. And like I mentioned before, the finishes to a commercial property, say that's, for example, the painting and those sorts of things aren't quite as, and the trims aren't quite as important as when inspecting a residential property. It's more the, the big ticket items that, that a commercial buyer would be looking for.
0: I mean, so as expected, there's obviously a lot that goes into it. Mish, just so the listeners know, when you're getting a residential compared to like a commercial building inspection, what are the big differences in timeline there?
1: We start talking about building and pace right from the beginning. So when you're negotiating a property right up front, you're speaking to the agent and in our offer to purchase. So we're telling the other side that we are going to be doing a building and pest report. And from the day that that contract is signed, we basically send um, building and pest in. So you want to get that report back as soon as possible. So that you can really start digging down and seeing the nuts and bolts of the basic construction straight away.
0: So I guess with the big difference between residential and commercial inspection is that commercial inspection, you'll only get that done when you're in the due diligence phase, when you're under contract. And a residential inspection, you'll be getting (coughs) that done before you actually have an offer accepted. Half a dozen
1: of the other there and very dependent on what states you're in. But I'll leave Daniel to answer that.
2: Typically what we find with both residential and commercial is, is people will require a building and pest inspection once they've, often once they've got a signed contract and they've got building and pest as a condition of the contract. So, so what we find is they'll engage their conveyancer or legal advisor or, or whoever's assisting them with the legal aspects of the transaction. And the first thing they do after that is that, then they go and get their building and, and pest inspection, usually to satisfy their seven or 14 day terms of the contract. Yeah, it's a little bit six of one, half a dozen Commercial properties are often more likely to engage us earlier, we find, simply because it's usually a larger transaction, whereas residential properties, they'll tend to wait until they've actually made an offer because they've been to visit six or seven other properties, decided which one they want to put an offer in, and they don't want six or seven building and pest reports. It gets quite expensive. So they're just keen to to get the one that they put the offer in on.
0: Well, that's strange because I thought that was, I mean, it must be just a Sydney thing then because when you're actually going to purchase a residential property, you have to get the building and pest done before you get an offer signed. That's the annoying thing in Sydney or at least New South Wales. I'm not really sure. You know, you could be spending a lot of money getting this building and pest done, but you don't actually get your offer accepted. So it's, that's one of the big things that happens in Sydney. It mustn't be uh, Australia-wide.
1: That's, it varies from states, from state to state, Andrew. So in Sydney or in New South Wales, they call it exchange of contract and you have to do your due diligence and building and pest forms part of that due diligence process. So you've got to do that before you exchange contract.
0: Yeah, for residential, not for commercial.
1: For both commercial and residential. So depending on the property itself, in commercial, you might get a little bit of of leverage on that, where uh, sometimes we can ask for 14 days or 21 days, depending on on the asset itself, how hot it is, what the demand is. But the usual, the norm that New South Wales is accustomed to, is that you do all of that up front. You wear it, you pick up the tab, you make sure that you first at the door to exchange contract, otherwise all of that that you all those expenses you've got to absorb that so daniel from your perspective why is commercial building inspection so important
2: i guess one of the the things with commercial building inspections is that you won't find as many concealed defects in commercial building inspections by concealed defects i guess they're just things Things that you, in a residential property, you, things are often normally hidden behind furniture or under floor coverings or, or those sorts of things. In a commercial building, you often don't have all those linings and coverings. You'll often find more big ticket items, so so significant cracking to the concrete slabs, or you might find rust to some of the steel girders, and these sorts of things that, if not treated or, or looked after, they can cause you know significant problems down the track. So, getting a commercial property inspected, I guess, is is really important in order to identify those those larger items that can cost you know tens of thousands of dollars.
1: It's kind of more um, building in BPs for commercial. We really are looking for structural sort of stuff. Yeah, you know?
2: and probably the, the other thing I would mention is with commercial properties, there's obviously um not just the inhabitants of a you know in a residential property, if the the people who live there are in, in and out of it. But in a commercial property there's often often workers and, and other people going in and out. And so safety hazards are a big deal too when it comes to a commercial property. And because there's significant liability that exists for the owner, should safety hazards be unattended to, And that could be anything from slip prevention. There's no slip prevention to stairs. So safety hazards and and those major defects, I think, those major structural defects are vital when uh, entering into any commercial property deal.
0: That makes sense. And just so the listeners know, who is usually responsible in conducting and getting the actual building and pest inspection done? As usually the buyer,
1: yes. Yeah. So in my case, as buyer's agents, we would make contact on behalf of the buyer, but the buyer's in agreement to do the building inspection. So from our perspective, we would do the introduction. So we've got a, a handful of building and pest companies that we work with, depending on the areas, and we would do the introduction to the correct building and pest inspector to do the correct type of property. Daniel, I, w- I wanted to ask you in terms of price range, doing a commercial building in peace. Now, I'm asking you about price range because we've got so many variations of commercial buildings. Do you want to just run us through the basic from the cheapest to the more expensive?
2: The pricing uh, an inspection is, is often not a, an exact science. It sounds a bit strange, but it usually depends on the complexity of the structure. You know, a big open empty factory is going to take less time to inspect than one with many rooms and a full commercial corporate fit out. That's going to take much longer to do. So we're usually looking at how much time we expect it to take an inspector to conduct that inspection in order to price it. And then our price range obviously increases according to whether we think it's a three hour, four hour, five hour, six hour inspection. But our typical, if you wanted to take your your standard tilt slab property with a mezzanine level, that's probably less than two hundred square meters, and it's you know your your standard industrial or commercial development, that's probably going to be between five and six hundred dollars, and and we'd probably allow up to three hours to do the inspection and the report, and that'll generally be between five and six hundred dollars, and then it'll go right up to a larger structure that's quite complex and it's going to take a whole day, and you're looking at twelve to thirteen hundred dollars for a day.
1: When you're looking at that basic warehouse, you say three hours. Now you've just got a slab and four walls and a roof. What takes up the three hours?
2: Well, usually if there's a mezzanine level as well. There's wet areas. So you usually got a kitchen, a small bathroom and these things. Wet areas take a considerable time to test. You've got to test the taps. You need to deploy our um, technology. We've got radar and moisture detecting uh, technology that will run through the wet areas to uh, check for any leaks or moisture damage and, and these types of things. We'll still tap through the building. So tapping that's that sounding, tapping the the linings and the um cornices and architraves and skirtings, we'll want to tap those to make sure that there's no termites have have got in. Some people suggest that termites aren't a problem in um in commercial buildings, but even as early as last week we found Termites in a what was predominantly a metal and concrete structure had made their way six floors up in a commercial building, chewed out much of the skirting boards in that that building, and that was just a few wow. weeks ago we found that wow. place. So, so the buyer the was was quite uh, happy that we'd found that, and uh, in yeah. the end they were able to negotiate on the price.
1: Was that a Strata building, a Strata complex?
2: Yes, it was. Yeah.
1: And so those termites, would those termites have been found on every single floor all the way up to the sixth floor?
2: Well, they could possibly have been. They may have just had a, uh, had a thin trail up. We can't do an invasive investigation where we can't pull plaster off the walls and to check. But clearly they've been able to make their, their way up and we were able to discover the entry point down the bottom and then obviously on that sixth floor. But we weren't able to inspect the, some of the other parts of the building because they were, were owned by other, other um, people.
1: Okay. What do your inspectors need to do? What sort of qualification do they need to become a, a building inspector?
2: It's a good question. It actually changes from state to state. The building inspection industry is, is unfortunately, it's not, not regulated that well across Australia. It's got a, a national standard to which inspections should be carried out to, but much of that can be, also be subject to, say, some it's subjective interpretation. So states like Queensland have brought the industry in under the QVCC, the Queensland Building and Construction Commission, and they regulate it here in Queensland. And an inspector in Queensland, for example, needs to be a licensed builder, a licensed pest technician, and they also need to have completed a, um, a residential building inspection course. And they have to have held their builder's licence for five years. So that's the minimum standard required in Queensland. But in most other states, Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales, WA, South Australia, the minimum requirement is a trade and or equivalent experience of qualification. And then also just units eight and ten for of the national course for inspecting and reporting on timber pests. Some people might say, oh, that's not great in in these other states, that there's inspectors out there that aren't builders. That's a debatable question or statement in that typically the best inspectors aren't necessarily builders. They're, they're, in our experience, they're typically carpenters or trade professionals that have been involved in the construction industry for a significant amount of time. Builders often got a university degree or they've done their cert for, all, but they don't actually hold a trade. So they've managed sites and they've run sites, but they often don't know the ins and outs and of a, of a building and so it's not necessarily that a builder is the best inspector. We In now experience carpenters tend to make the best inspectors because they're on a job site from the start to the finish and they know know a little bit about everything. So they're, they're the standards that are required across Australia. So it's only Queensland where, where it's required to be a builder.
1: It does make sense because a lot of the, the construction are timber. And as you say, they're in the, on the building site from the start right through until the finish.
2: That's right. So they've understood how it's all gone together, where wires should be, where plumbing should be, how it connects and all goes together. So so typically that's what we've discovered. Now, of course, many carpenters go on and get their builder's license. And so most of our inspectors are licensed builders, but not necessarily all of them. We're looking for the, the most qualified and, and competent people rather than uh, rather than just that builder's license.
0: I just wanted to jump back to that uh, the technology question or the technology that you're using. I mean, just to yeah. so you know. Do you use drones to check the roofs
2: now? So we don't always use drones. So inspections are governed, like I said, by a standard and roofs that can't be safely accessed generally aren't inspected in a building and pest inspection. However, we do have a couple of our inspectors now that have just started using drones and we're running some pilots with them to ensure that we can get a a similar quality inspection with drones as opposed to either getting on the roof or not not inspecting it because we can't access it. And that's obviously the limitations for accessing roofs are obviously there to protect inspectors from falling and, and these types of things. So, yes, we do use drones on occasions. We have Like I said, we have a couple of inspectors use them all the time. We have a drone partnership, particularly for commercial buildings. If people choose to have the roof inspected by drones for an added cost, we can use one of it. Our- our drone partners to come in. Drone inspectors, inspection companies are quite expensive, but if, you know, if you're know you spending several millions of dollars on a commercial property, you know four or $500 on a drone for an hour is not a big deal.
0: Yeah, it's not too bad. And these roofs can be absolutely huge to get expenses if there's something wrong with them.
2: What other That's technology right. do you use? Yeah, so we use a device called the Termitrack T3i. The Termitrack T3i is probably all uh, well, it is. It's uh, probably the state-of-the-art technology in our sector now. And it's a moisture sensing radar tracking and termite detecting device. So it's, it's a three-way device, it tests tests areas for moisture, it can identify termites' noise and sound behind the wall, and wow. then you can also use it to track those noises and sounds with through the radar part of the device back to the source. So you can track where the termites are actually gaining access. So that's that's probably our our key piece of digital technology. It has an app that sits on our phone and you use the device and the device sends all the data back to our app where it gets analyzed and, and we get to read it and interpret it and then include the, those findings in the report. Other more low-tech technologies, obviously, we, we use high-powered torches and we use sounding tools and these types of things.
1: That device that you're talking about, is it, is it like an app on your phone that you can scan or that picks up sounds and just sends all the information back to the, the, the main base?
2: No, so it has a it has a base unit, and the base unit is what you would place on the wall to check for leaks or termite activity, etc. And then that base unit sends the messages back to the app on your phone. Yeah, okay. so it
0: interfaces from the phone. Yeah, that's, that's really correct. cool. Yeah, no, it's a
2: it's a cool piece of technology. The big thing about the
0: inspection is just not getting you there. It's actually the report that you deliver. What's actually in that report if you haven't seen one before?
2: Yeah, so the report's made up of quite a of a number of different sections, but typically the start of the report will just outline the the terms the report's completed under or the Australian standards that it's completed under. So that's the scope, limitations, exclusions that it's conducted under. And that includes things like, obviously, at the time we're inspecting these properties, our client is not the owner of the property. And so we can't go in there, we can't drill holes and we can't rip walls off and uh, and these sorts of things to or cause any damage to the property. We can't be moving people's furniture around or pulling their shelves out. So that, that first part of the report will also will identify those, the conditions under which it's it's undertaken. The next part of the report will just be the basic details of the, the property, how many rooms, how many bathrooms, how many kitchens, how many offices, what the main building materials are that it's constructed out of, whether it's a steel girder roof, tilt slab walls, concrete floor, it'll identify all the main building Things and typically the age of the property. So you've got all the, what direction the property is facing. So you've got all those basic details of the property. And then it gets into the report. It will typically identify areas that we weren't able to access. Maybe there was a, a room that was locked and no one had the keys and we couldn't get in there. We would identify that. Or the roof had a really steep pitch and was five stories high and it wasn't safe for us to get up there and walk around on it. It would identify things like this. And then you actually get into the report. We would start with safety defects. So that'll be anything from windows with no fall protection to uh, hot water systems with no tempering valves to stairs with no uh, slip prevention and we'll identify the major safety defects to the property and then we'll identify major defects in the report next. Major defects, there's sections there for the ceilings, the walls, the wet areas, kitchens, bathrooms, And we'll identify the defects in each of those those sections. And then there's a minor defect section. Minor defects are things that don't affect the structure or the serviceability of the property. They're more more just cosmetic or minor maintenance items. And we'll identify some of those in a more general manner than the specific nature of the major defects. And then finally, we would um, follow that same process if it was a pest inspection as well. On the commercial property, it's the the pest section sort of repeats itself, but this time focuses on any any pest evidence of pests, any conditions that are conducive for pests. This will be areas maybe just outside the main wall there might be a tap and there's and there's no drain there. so so the water from the tap leaks onto the ground, creating moist ground, which is a conducive condition for pests, and often that's where you'll find pests will enter. So we'll look for things where there's taps without drains underneath them and those sorts of things. And we'll report on all of that in the pest section. And then finally, based on our findings, at the end of the report, there's a bit of a summary and any additional specialist inspections we'd recommend, whether that's a a plumber or an structural engineer or something like this. So that's typically what you'll find in a report.
1: That's really, really handy, really handy, Dan. But, you know, often we receive these reports. They arrive that are 50, 80-page documents, depending on the size of the property. It almost kind of scares the client off. (laughs) They check the (laughs) site and they say, wow, (laughs) where do we start with this? So we have people on the ground that basically go through the report and they know exactly where to go and start looking, which would be in your Section 3 and Section 4. So, to read between the lines of the report, you know, when we look at a a report, obviously, you know, if it comes back and 90% of the building is falling over, then we know that it needs to be demolished. If, you know, we really are looking for those little bits and pieces, things to look out for, what would you suggest is how do you read between the lines on the report?
2: So as you mentioned, you know, some, some houses, it's pretty obvious. They're about to fall over and there's no reading between the lines required. A little bit of understanding the limitations of a building and pest inspection and the, the why it's reported the way it is is probably helpful as well. It, it would help to read between the lines. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the industry is unfortunately not as regulated as it should be. I and mean, this is where we're, we're taking significant steps to try and uh, bring this regulation and standardisation in to the industry. And unfortunately, the industry is quite litigious. you know, knock on wood. We're 43,000 inspections down the track and we're yet to face any litigation, but that's not the normal experience in our industry. It's it's pretty common. And one of the reasons for this is that people have an expectation of an inspection that differs significantly from what an inspector is allowed to report on and the way that he must report. And so when we report on a major defect, and and a good way to highlight it, for example, is is we'll include a a cracked roof tile as a major defect. That's a $5 fix to replace that roof tile. But under the definition of a major defect in the Australian standards, we must report that as a major defect because if it's not repaired Further damage could occur. We have a rainstorm, water leaks in, comes down onto the ceiling, causes the ceiling to collapse. Definition of major defects as anything's a major defect, if it's not repaired and, and as a result of not being repaired, it could result in further deterioration to the property. So understanding that an inspector is just because something's a major defect doesn't mean it's a major fix. You need to fix it or it could become a big problem. So many things will be put in, in major defects.
1: It's very much, by the sounds of things, it's very much up to the reader to determined how severe what yeah. they reading is and what what the intention you know what they intend doing with it basically.
2: yeah
1: and i think a, this little, a little communication bit. comes in with this is where the communication comes in between the buyer and the building and, and pest inspector
2: a little bit. Yeah, that's true. We, we always advise our clients. Um, at the end of all of our reports is our building inspector's name, phone number and email. And we always encourage clients to, to call the builder and the builder will then be able to explain more detail about the extent of the damage. As a pre-purchase report is a condition report. That mm. means it reports on the condition of the property as, as it can be seen. It's a visual inspection. But, It's not diagnostic, so it'll discover water damage to the ceiling and it'll be reported as water damage to the ceiling. But it's not diagnostic in that they can't visually see what's causing the problem. They can't report on it. All they can report on is the damage, the condition of that building element. And so that's where it's a great opportunity for them to call up the inspector, ask them to explain a few things, and the inspector can state, well, yeah, I I can't see where it's coming from. There's no access to the roof, but typically this is from a broken pipe. You need to send a plumber up there or something like that. So reading between the lines, firstly, requires them speak to the inspector, just picking up the phone. And the second piece of advice is that it really depends on who's buying the property to what level they have the ability to read between the lines, for example. If you have some trade skills, you're you're an ex tradesman and you're quite financial, for example. So some defects to a property aren't a big deal, some major defects. But if you have no knowledge of, of any trade, you're not you're operating on a shoestring budget. Then the, the same defects could mean the deal breaker for you. It's really difficult for us to advise whether someone should or shouldn't buy a property. It really comes down to many of the the factors that are influencing their their purchase decision.
1: Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Makes total sense.
0: I mean, I'm sure you've uncovered some horrors over the years. Can you share some of those with
2: us? We're only five years in, but we've had some adventures over that time. Some of those, I mean, when I say basic ones, they're not basic, they're extensive, but it's for everything from, you know, extensive uh, termite damage to the point where the place has got to be knocked down. Discovered meth dens, they're making and and cooking meth. In fact, it was only last year we showed up to a property and our inspector was just about to walk in when a a cavalcade of police cars came screaming to a stop and completed a raid on the property. So clearly we didn't complete that inspection. We turned around and and hopped in our car and called a client and let them know what was going on. Also earlier this year we had an inspector who actually went into a a property that had, had been vacant for some time And it was so bad that after about uh, full of fleas, a a complete flea infestation that you could just see them hopping through the air. and was almost cloud in the air. He had to come out of there and go get some treatment to treat all uh, his flea bites. So he was only there for about five minutes until uh, he gave me a call. And I said, no, I said, get out of there. Don't stay in there. So yeah, from police raids to meth dens to flea infestations, some properties have Clearly, just about being used as a rubbish dump and just rotten food and, and all sorts of stuff strewn through, through the property right. we 've had some horrors over the years we 've had to call snake catchers on three or four occasions to come and get some snakes out of the roof so we can go into the roof and inspect them. These see so some crazy are, dogs
1: <laughs> people are in these properties and they don 't know that there's snakes in the roof, either working or living whatever.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> so we have we have a, a teams channel with, that the inspectors will share things on. Just that's an internal one between the the other inspectors and the management team, and they'll share any any photos of these sorts of things that they that they encounter on their day to day inspections. There's some crazy photos there sometimes. <laughs>
1: That would be good footage for some fun YouTube.
2: Yeah, we've included a lot of it in our training materials. (laughs) But yeah, maybe put some of it in the marketing too, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So, mate, like when you're going in and you're seeing a meth
0: lab, like first of all, why did the owner of the property let you go in there if they're the one running the meth lab? And like, how does that work? Why would the the occupant let you go in (laughs) If you know yeah, no, a meth lab
2: there. That's yeah sense. no. No, good question. Often the occupant has it's owned by a landlord. The owner has it and they're renting it out, and the, the occupant in it has done a runner, and they oh, want to okay. sell the place or or something like that. And they're they're often not aware that it was used as a meth dead. They just know that they didn't have very good occupants in there, and usually they cleaned up a lot of their stuff in there, and a lot of the the meth. Meth kits and, and often meth residue is quite invisible. But when we test for it, the readings are off the Richter to the point that it can't be smoking meth. It has to only have been, you know, used to cook meth in that sort of property. And in those type of properties where it's the contamination, meth residue is so significant, they've got to be knocked down generally. Some places can be uh, remedied, but most have to be knocked down if they've been used as a meth then.
0: Yeah, that was actually what I was thinking when you were saying that is like it's standard for you to. Check for the contamination for meth in all of your building inspections, or no, is that we, something you do when you see you, you have
2: evidence? The point of sale will always offer the, a meth test to the client if they would like us to also conduct a meth test. About ten to fifteen percent of our clients currently will um, have us undertake a meth test, and of the meth tests that we undertake, about sixteen percent of those come back with um, positive readings where the contamination is over and above the safe guidelines. Yeah, because it can be quite
0: dangerous, though, can't it, actually living in a house that has meth contamination?
2: Yeah, so it's got quite a number of of serious uh, health side effects, particularly for young or or vulnerable or old and vulnerable people.
1: I must say, that's pretty much a a residential problem. I think in, in residentials, you come across that sort of a problem quite frequently. I I don't know, Daniel, whether you've had any of the same sort of instances happening in commercial. In the years I've been in this, I've never run into it in commercial.
2: Yeah, so typically in commercial properties, uh, when we do a lot of commercial inspections, the clients aren't aren't that bothered about getting a a meth test done. But certainly Mm -hmm. on a couple of occasions already this year and a couple last year, what we found is, is bathrooms and toilets of commercial properties is you, you'll often, you can, not often, but you can find meth contamination because people go there at smoke go or lunchtime and, and they'll quickly smoke some meth in the, in a toilet or a bathroom. So we do find it in commercial properties, not as common as residential, but we do find it. Yeah. We recently did a talk about horror stories. We recently did an inspection at a property and, um, for an older couple. And we found meth contamination over and above the safe guidelines in their their toilet and bathroom. And the, this older couple said, "Oh, that's you know, we've been living here for thirty years. We've raised all our children here. There's no way the the read is wrong. You need to do the test again." And so we sort of said, well, come in here. Let's, let's see. And we did the test again. It came back positive. And then there was a, a manhole up there. And, and when the inspector went up to have a look in the manhole in the roof space, there was all the, the mess smoking gear up in there. The older couple there said, I think we've got some uh, tough questions to ask our children this week when they come home to, for dinner. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. They <laughs>
1: were going to tell me that they were, they were doing it on the splice.
2: No, clearly they're grown children now. Had grown up and left home and came over for for you know for roast every Sunday. We're about to not have an unpleasant Sunday that week. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane.
0: All right, mate. So I was just wondering if you could also give us a few examples of where you found a big ticket item that's actually been a deal breaker, like saying, you know, big cracks in the walls or things like that?
2: So pretty much every day we we come across big ticket items that that are deal breakers. You know, we're doing anywhere between sort of 70 and 100 inspections a day. So there's many clients uh, that, that find deal breakers. Some of the more common ones, you know, Bad termite damage is is often a deal breaker for people. Where the ground is unstable and there's been significant movement cracking to the the walls, that'll be a deal breaker. Really run down properties that have a a big combination of major defects, that'll be deal breakers. But often the deal breaker is dependent on the expectation of the purchaser, which sort of goes back to Mm. what I was saying before in terms of you know, what's their appetite or their budget, what's their appetite to rectify things and what's their budget to rectify things, do they have the skills to rectify things themselves? Or don't they? Do they are they on a shoestring or, or are they they well financed and they're prepared to do um they, they want to do lots of renovations to the property anyway. Typically but they're the sort of the deal breaker things, cracking, major cracking to the walls, major termite damage, a really run down property, these types of things would be more often than anything else the deal breakers.
0: And what's the most expensive defect
2: that you've uncovered for a client? properties that have got to be demolished, whether that was because of termite damage or it was a meth den or something like that. That would typically be the worst. Often we uncover things where over the years the piers or the the stumps underneath the house are sunk and moved and there's uneven and undulating floors throughout the house. And so as a result of that, the the entire house needs re-stumping and re-flooring. That's usually a, a major issue and it's pretty common. We'll find that on a weekly basis we'll encounter those sort of defects. And so that's the most expensive type of defects that we generally uncover.
0: What would you usually do if something came up in a building in Pest for one of your clients, those kind of big ticket items came up?
1: Well, you know what I always say about commercial real estate? It's not about the building itself. <coughs> it's about the communication that goes on. In the deal, so the whole thing is it's the forms part of the negotiation, so typically what we would do is we compile a report once we accumulate all those reports from building and pest electrical plumbing, we try and put everything together in one document and we would take that back to the seller with quotes so it's very, very important that um, you do all your your quoting. Put that all together, give them compelling reasoning as to why and open a platform of communication. So the first thing that I would do is take that back to the selling agent and say, look, we've uncovered X, Y, Z. We've uncovered that lintels are falling out or whatever it is, you know, particularly if it's fairly large stuff. We've had a builder quote on it. We would have to submit the quote to them. And then negotiate and just say to them, look, you know, we've got one of two options over here that either the seller remedies the problem uh, prior to settlement. Otherwise, they discount the property to the value of whatever the damage is overall. It's a delicate process. It's a delicate conversation and very, very dependent on who your seller is as to what the (coughs) outcome is going to be how you approach it, how you go about it. We've had instances where um the buyers have just gone in like bulldogs. The deal has crashed, whereas if you go in and you've got all that evidence, proof, quotes, substantiating documents, irrespective of whether the seller is selling the property to us or to somebody else, somebody else is going to have the same findings. So I think yeah you've got to frame it in such a way that the seller's got to think, well, you know, I've got a buyer in hand. If I let them go, it's going to delay the entire deal by another maybe 90 days.
2: Yeah. A few weeks ago, we did a commercial inspection. It was just your standard tilt slab property with a mezzanine level. And and our inspector found a significant rust on some of the, the metal beams that were supporting the mezzanine level. And and investigated a bit further and to the point where some of the steel was was flaking off and it was quite clear that those beams hadn't been uh, sealed correctly or protected from rust and that they hadn't been installed to code either um it looks like it was a it was a DIY job oh. and so the we're not always privy to what the seller decides to do whether they decide to take the property or pull out of the contract it's not really uh part of our we don't get involved with that but on this occasion they made us aware that they they went to the seller the seller wasn't prepared to come to the party in terms of repairing those beams replacing those beams and the buyer wasn't prepared to buy buy it at the price that they wanted no one wanted to move so the, the deal fell through so neither neither side had the appetite to meet somewhere in the middle on that one.
1: Mm, That's very unfortunate when something like that does happen and generally find it's it's a communication breakdown, from my perspective anyway.
0: I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be right back after this short break. Are you struggling to put together a wealth plan? Revolve Commercial have designed an eight-question process that generates a personalized 12-month wealth growth plan. And it's free. I've got to check this out myself. Go to www.revolvecommercial.com.au to get your personalized wealth growth plan free today. So what are some of the other common things that you always find on every single property made that actually aren't deal breakers? They're just something that you need to report on?
2: Poor construction or, you know, untradesman-like sort of work. So home handyman stuff, home handyman renovations, uh, this is pretty common, whether that's on a residential or a commercial property. We find a lot of it on both types of properties. In commercial properties, we particularly find things like you know wet areas, so bathrooms or, or toilets and the walls and these sorts of things that have been built around those toilets. Sometimes they've just been slapped up pretty quick. Kitchens aren't sealed properly and the plumbing's not installed properly. It's, it's really common. Cracking to the concrete slab floor. It's not necessarily severe, but, you know, it was poorly done. And, yeah, again, self-installed mezzanine levels is really common in um, commercial properties. Bathroom leaks are really common. Termite damage is common, these these sorts of things. We get a lot of minor cracking, to concrete walls and plaster linings, lots of paint defects, cupboards and cabinets and things that aren't operating correctly, windows, doors that are jamming. These are really common things that we sort of find in, in most properties, residential or commercial.
1: Okay. From a, um, a buyer's perspective, we do see a lot of that coming through very, very commonly. And often those are the things that we've just got to gloss over because it's very relevant to the value of the property.
2: They're often maintenance items, really. And so there's a cost associated to that, but it's not necessarily, um, a, a significant cost compared to, you know, uh, something that needs, needs replacing like or restumping, or a new floor that needs redoing entirely or something like that. So. Yeah. Well, typically, maintenance items aren't, aren't considered deal breakers.
1: Daniel, I think for a lot of people, they don't really understand what exactly building and pest covers. And I know there's, there are a couple of areas, specialty areas that you don't cover. Do you want to just give us a little heads up on that?
2: Yeah, so just to, to repeat, the building and pest inspections are completed to an Australian standard. That's AS4349.1-2007, in case anyone wants to remember that and is interested. <laughs> um, so it's completed to that standard, and that standard lists what should and should not be reported on in a building inspection. But I guess what we need to understand is inspectors are builders and pest technicians. They're not electricians. They're not plumbers. They're not engineers. So generally, if they can't see a, an engineering issue, an obvious engineering issue such as significant cracking or, or footing movement, they can't report on it. If they can't, they while they can turn the lights on and off in the property and, and go around to the um the meter box and check your safety switch, that's about the extent of what an inspector can do when it comes to electrical work, because electricians require a licence. Builders don't have an electrician's licence. But if they do discover any issues, they'll recommend that you get an electrician in to solve that issue.
1: From your perspective, in terms of order of events, building and pest, then electrician and plumbing and roofing?
2: Yeah, so building them first, because they will often uncover the condition of something, but not necessarily always the cause of it. Leaking behind the bathroom wall is detected, so high moisture readings behind the bathroom wall, that's when you would engage a plumber and conduct a more detailed inspection. But if there's no moisture issues discovered to the property, then there's usually no need to recommend or, or get a plumbing inspection. And the same with the electrical stuff. If we haven't discovered any obvious electrical issues to the property, there's no wires just hanging out the out of the wall or the safety switches working and, and everything's turning on and off then we're likely not to recommend an electrical inspection because it's not required, nothing that's indicating it's there. The building and pest inspection is a a general inspection and specialist inspections will generally only be recommended if there's been a reason detected that 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 specialist inspection would be required.
1: Daniel, is that the same in every state? Now, I'm very aware that the buildings in Queensland, you've primarily got uh, wooden constructions where down south, South Australia, Victoria... They're pretty much solid brick and mortar. So what are the different rules? I know you guys are national. Yeah.
2: No, it's a, it's a good question. The, the rules don't differ. They're, it's a national standard. Just cons- the type of construction differs. So in Western Australia, most of the buildings there are, are solid brick. And there's some other nuances there with the type of construction. As you mentioned, up in Queensland, there's a lot of timber construction, this type of stuff. Termites are more prevalent up in Queensland than they are in, say, Tasmania, where they're nice. almost non-existent. It's not the rules that differ that differentiate, it's just the it's the local knowledge that counts and what you're inspecting for in those states. So we we have a standardized way of reporting, nationally, method of reporting however we conduct slightly different training which is nuanced for each state for our inspectors in each state so that they're accounting for the the nuances in the the different types of building and construction methods so the the report is still the same same format and they'll report in the same way. We we have a a method of reporting. We call it what, where, who, why, what the defect is, where it's located, who we recommend to fix it, and why it needs to be fixed, for example, to prevent further deterioration or to prevent further leaks or whatever it is. So all of our inspectors will will report according to that, but depending on where they are, again, like I said, they'll focus on the the construction techniques used in their their state, and that the Australian Standards allows for that and allows that inspectors must be knowledgeable and experienced in um, the type of building that they're inspecting on.
0: So, mate, as a seller, would you think it's a good idea to also have a building inspection done to pre- like preparing the house or the commercial property for sale?
2: Yeah, we think it's a great idea for sellers to get it done. Uh, there's a couple of boutique operators in Sydney that actually do it as part of every one of their their listings. They will automatically get a building and pest done for the seller. It's just part of their, their listing package for sellers. They've had really great success with it. So it does a couple of things. One, it allows informs the seller of what issues are there with the property. So then the seller has the option to either choose to get the property sale ready or then do their own investigations to determine how much, um, the repairs are likely to cost so that they're prepared for negotiations should they arise. We've had cases where, you know, we've discovered rot in a goal post and so the, the buyer has gone to the seller and said, oh, we need to replace the whole pergola. It's going to cost us $12,000. We want $12,000 off the price. And the buyer's been able to go back and actually, the seller, sorry, has been able to go back and say, well, actually, no, the rest of the structure is fine. It's just this one post and it's $500 to replace that post. So we'll give you $500 off, off the contract's price. Yeah, And so sellers can be prepared in advance. The other advantage too that we've found for sellers to get an inspection is that they can provide the report to the buyer. All reports must be conducted as an independent and unbiased report, regardless of whether the inspector is doing it for a buyer or a seller. So it'll be done exactly the same way. The, the contents of the report should be no different, regardless of who we're doing the inspection for. And so that's a requirement of, of reporting. So if a seller gets that done, they can provide that to the buyer. The buyer is fully aware of the condition of the property, from the first day he looks at it, and so he can be ready to to sign on the dotted line and um, and satisfy that building and pest condition from day one, without those those seven or fourteen or twenty one day um, condition clauses in there. We found that what happens there is that you know seven days in when a building and pest is conducted by the buyer and something is discovered and then the buyer pulls out, that can be prevented because from day one the buyer is already aware of what, what the condition is and, and far less contracts fail when a seller has provided a report up front to the the buyer.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. So Mish, would you ever rely on a a seller giving you the building and pest inspection or would you always get an independent, you know, contractor in there to do it yourself?
1: You know, it's very unusual, particularly in commercial to have the seller present a building and pest inspection. And I think if we are presented with the BP inspection, the first port of call would be to, to make contact with the company that has done the inspection. And again, depending on the type of asset that you're buying as well, you've got to look at it within reason. If it's a good A class asset and you've got the building and pest inspection report, and as Dan was saying, they act independently, not favoring either or. The purpose of, of them being in place is to bring to the attention of buyer and seller what the defects are. You know, we'd, we'd probably value that on its merits from one property to the next. If we picked up that there was something untoward, then I would definitely say we'd get our own independent inspection done.
0: And so Dan, when, when would you say, in your opinion, it's not necessary to have an inspection done?
2: Good question. I would say almost never.
1: I was waiting to hear Strata.
2: Yeah. No. Even with strata properties, uh, it's still important the, to inspect the actual dwelling that the, the person is occupying. The rest of the property generally won't be inspected, but um, but the person is still responsible for any any issues that that fall between in the, within the walls of that that house or unit that they're occupying, etc. So it's still often required. We would always, always recommend one. I can't think of too many occasions when I'd say it's not necessary. Even with new builds, we uh, regularly do inspections on new builds because often there's poor workmanship, incomplete works, things like splashbacks to to kitchens or. Ceiling in bathrooms haven't been completed correctly. These sorts of things, and it, so that's really it's really common. Uh, windows and cabinets aren't opening and closing properly. So even in new building inspection, and and some might say, well, you wouldn't do a pest inspection on a new building, would you? Because no pests. We often do. The reason for this is the the pest technician comes to the property, he installs the the pest system in the property and then the builders finish off the rest of the construction on the property and what they do when they're finishing it off is that they can breach that pest system so they'll complete certain things like they'll render the walls down too low and won't allow a 75 millimeter gap underneath the bottom of the walls for viewing so all that good work that the pest technician's done on this new property it can be undone because the the builders haven't complied with their requirements so even pest inspections are are necessary on uh, new builds often
1: That's interesting. Never thought about it that way. Yeah, you're 100% right. You get builders and you get builders,
2: right? That's very true. And unfortunately, some of them that you get, what you were hoping for.
1: We look at a building and pest report. And are there any little tricks that we should know or be aware of on how to calculate or estimate what type of building inspection would cost in comparison to the property?
2: Yeah. So, so. It depends on the size. The larger the property, generally the longer it's going to take. But more so than that, it's the complexity and the number of wet areas. By wet areas, I mean basically kitchens and bathrooms and laundries. They're the things that really, that are really the critical elements when trying to calculate the cost. So we could go into a 400 square meter commercial building and it's got a little toilet and a little kitchen in there. And it won't take us as much time as a, as a hundred square meter building that's got you know, that's spread out over two levels and it's got three bathrooms and two kitchens. So the number of wet areas and the number of kitchens, so kitchens, bathrooms, are typically the things that that take the time. Um it's not so much the size of the property. If it has a subfloor or a roof space, so so it's on stumps and you can crawl underneath the house, or it has a roof space, that'll take longer because you've got to get in it. But if it's a many commercial buildings are often on slabs They've got metal roofs without a roof space. So the inspector doesn't need to go underneath or into the roof space, and so that would be quite quick.
1: Office building, for instance, where it's a solid concrete office building, concrete from floor to, let's say, two or three levels up, you've got roof space or you've got ceiling space in, let's say, on the first and the second level. Do they actually go into those ceiling spaces?
2: Yeah, often those ceiling spaces aren't suitable. They're hanging ceilings, and they're not suitable for crawling in. There's not enough space in there to actually crawl in, and because they're hanging ceilings, they're not designed to support someone's weight. So they often won't go in them. What they'll do is they'll lift a couple of tiles at strategic areas in the ceiling, and they'll get on their ladder, poke their heads up there, shine the torch around, and have a look for any any issues. But they they won't get in them.
1: Often what we do is when we go into the buildings, you look up at those roof tiles and you can see there's a couple of wet patches. Yeah,
2: right.
1: If they see wet patches, then uh, I'm assuming that they would look on the inside of the roof to see if there's any signs of ingress.
2: They'll report on that wet patch and then they'll usually lift a tile either side of the, um, that wet patch, one of those ceiling tiles, either side of that wet patch, poke their head in there and then they'll try and see where, identify where that, that leak might be coming from, whether it's from, from air conditioning or from plumbing or from, even from the roof.
1: So either which way, I mean, if they're seeing a wet patch, they're going to put that in
2: their report. There, there should be no reasons not to ever include any, any wet patches in a report. They should always be in there.
1: And with regards from the time that the inspector is at the property versus until we actually receive that report. What is the time frame that is acceptable?
2: Yeah, So as long as the inspection is it takes no longer than a day, typically most inspections will take between that that two and sort of five hours. So any inspection that can be completed within a day, the report will be sent to the client within 24 hours of them completing that inspection.
1: That's good to know if uh, people are on due diligence. They've left us late. They need to know.
2: Yeah, that's right. But 24 hours from the time the inspection is completed, we guarantee delivery of the report or we'd give it to them for free. So,
1: And do you ever do any uh, cost estimates in your report?
2: No. Unfortunately, that's uh, that's excluded from the standards. It's one of the, the key exclusions of the standards is that we're not allowed to provide costs to rectify one of the or the primary reason for it is that it's it's a condition report and we're not we're not using any invasive investigation so like i mentioned earlier we can't there might be moisture behind the wall but we can't actually drill a hole in there to find out or remove the taps or the or the the shower head or something to to look into it we just have to report on what we found we we can't actually do those things so we don't actually know often we don't actually know what the problem is So we can't, we only know what the resultant condition of the property is as a result of a problem. So hidden, hidden things, we don't know what the cause is. Is it a broken pipe? Is it just a, is it just a broken washer? What is it? So we can't, we can't provide quotes for what we don't know.
1: You would suggest in that case just getting a professional in to come that's in. That's
2: right. In. So, so we'll usually say, Hey, we recommend you get a plumber in to, to determine the appropriate method to rectify and appropriate method to rectify and assess costs, provide you with a cost estimate.
1: Yeah, that's part of my It would be yeah. great to give us quotes all the way through, but we don't expect you to be magicians.
2: So often inspectors, if you call up an inspector and there's some obvious issues in the property that they've obviously identified and the causes easily identified, they can see the causes, you know, they can give you their, their industry knowledge, best estimates on it. For example, you know, doors jamming or the, it's obvious that the, the sink washes, the tap washes are failing they'll say, you know, it's 20 cents for a washer and and the plumber will probably cost $80 call out. So they're often happy to provide best estimates based on those things that they know it's within their knowledge band. But outside of that, it's it's not possible and it can't be included in the report or otherwise the report becomes non-compliant.
0: So, mate, do you ever have any um, cost-effective options? Like, you know, you do the actual pest inspection, but then imagine the hard part is actually putting the pen to paper or, or, you know, typing up the report. Do you have a cost-effective option where, like, we can get you to do the inspection and then you just share the actual results over the phone? We don't actually want the handwritten report because they're probably just going to look at it and it's going to be too scary to read anyway. We just kind of want a feedback over the phone.
2: Not specifically, not what you're you're, you're talking about. We complete the – most of our reports are completed on site as they're conducting the inspection. We have uh, app-based technology, which we use to complete the reports. We take, take photos – and and enter our our comments on those defects within the body of that app. And so, and then at the end, we can obviously, we hit review and the client, sorry, the inspector can review the report, make sure he's got it how it is. And then he submits the report, which goes to our customer support team. We have a, a number of people in our customer support team and they're trained to review reports. And so every single report we produce is reviewed firstly by the inspector, it's reviewed a second time by the customer support team, and only then, then it gets sent out to the client. It's a pretty streamlined and smooth process. It goes very quick. Like I said, we have a 24-hour guarantee on any reports. What we often encourage our inspectors to do, though, is that once they've completed their inspection and on the, they're on the way to their next inspection is to call the client and fill them in on the big-ticket items over the phone and then also obviously let them know that you'll get the report, you know, either tonight or in the morning. But I just wanted to fill you in, let you know i finished the inspection, these are the main things i found. And that's typically what our inspectors would do.
1: The one area that we haven't really spoken about, I mean, I know the answer with regards fire safety. Now, fire safety is pretty much uh, specialised. However, if there are existing fire hoses, reels on the property, primarily uh, outside on on (coughs) big complexes, you might have fire reels and fire hoses, fire packs. Is that something that uh, you would inspect, you'd look at? Would you include that in your report?
2: So officially, obviously, uh, it's a specialist inspection. Uh, It's a a fire safety compliance check by someone uh, trained to do those, where we do discover obvious things that is, is, you know, that most builders are aware of and trained of and aware of when it comes to fire safety in properties, where they do discover those things, they'll still report on them. So they'll still add them into the report. However, they would still further recommend that you get a fire safety compliance check done. But yeah, if it's obvious and it's evident, uh, we'll report on it, but you should always get a, a fire safety compliance. T- inspection done, particularly on commercial properties.
1: Yes it's it's amazing how many properties we go through that are not fire compliant.
2: It's very common. And the code has changed over the years. So a thirty year old property that was built you know a property that was built thirty years ago complied with the code at the time, but it doesn't comply today. So that's why it's important to get the compliance checks done. But yes, anything obvious, the fire extinguishers There's no fire extinguisher there. It's hanging off its brackets, upside down off its brackets. There's smoke alarms hanging down or something like that. We'll photograph that and report on that. But that's not a replacement for a fire safety compliance inspection. That makes sense.
0: All right, let's move this party onto the next segment of the show, which is the fire round. So in this segment, we ask the same four questions to each guest in every episode. All right, Mish, do you want to kick the first one off?
1: Yes. So Dan... (laughs) this is not a test it was was one book and one book only that you could read in your life what would that book be and why
2: i read lots of books but i would say one of the most foundational books that i i believe uh, everyone should read is is dale carnegie's famous book uh, how to win friends and influence people i think it's just uh, lays a great foundation for anyone who's who's either in leadership or in business or just wants to treat people well. So Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, it's a brilliant one and all of our our managers and leaders at, at Rapid have read it, along with several others. That's an absolute ripper of a book.
0: Mm. All right, mate. So if you had $1 million deposit right now and you had to invest it tomorrow or you would lose it to the tax man, where would you invest it and what would you invest it in?
2: Oh, it sounds like I'm giving financial advice, but I would... <laughs> I would put it into an NDIS development, I believe. Okay, cool.
1: Okay, I'm going to have to speak to you off air, Dan.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No problems,
1: (laughs) Uh, Dan, if you had lost all your net wealth and had to start all over again, what would your first move be?
2: Well... Uh, Five years ago, I did that and I started rapid building inspections. That was my first move, (laughs) starting a business.
1: (laughs) Okay, so your answer is you'd start a business, not necessarily rapid building again, but you'd start a business.
2: No, I think so. I think with, with what we've learned over the years, there's opportunity everywhere. I think provided people are prepared to put in the work, realize that they don't know everything. When they start and roll, roll with it, I think there's, there's lots of opportunities out there. There's certainly not a lack of opportunity when it comes to, to business.
1: Said by a true entrepreneur, you see the world through entrepreneurial eyes. It's, I think that's amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah.
2: I think there's, I think there's opportunities everywhere. And, uh, and often what I, I say to our team is that, um, opportunities aren't lost. It's just that someone else takes them and it's usually because we're we're too busy going down to the uh, newsagents to buy a lotto ticket that we miss the opportunity. Opportunities aren't lost, just um, other people take them. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, Dan, apart from inspecting buildings, what are some of your favourite hobbies?
2: I guess one of my favourite things now is, uh, is I, I love to watch my kids play sport. I tend to live my failed sporting career through their lives now. I'm not sure how impressed they are by it, but I really enjoy it. So I love doing that. I love travelling. I've stayed engaged in the aid and development sector, and I really enjoy um, getting overseas, whether that's to Asia and Africa, and working on some of the projects that I've spent a lot of time on in the last sort of fifteen, twenty years in in those sorts of places. And I love to just do a little bit of woodwork and a little bit of carpentry work around the home, whether it's you know making some some furniture or, or those sorts of things. That that really I really enjoy that. I do a bit of do a few boot camps, on the beach, a few mornings a week. Um, those oh, nice! Sort of things keep me healthy and keep me centered. I think.
0: Beautiful. All
2: right, mate. So you prepared
0: a free giveaway for the listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Rapid, we have uh, have developed a uh, over the years a, a corporate partnership program, where we we like to engage with our referral partners. And what we we do is we we offer offer a program that we we originally called it Rapid Twenty Five. And what we'd do is every time a, a corporate partner or referral partner sent us a, a booking, we would give them $25 and we'd give the, the client $25 off their inspection. What we've done the last year or so is we've just said to the corporate partners, listen, it's entirely up to you. You can keep the $50 or you can split it or you can give the client a discount, but yeah, you've got $50 to play with on your inspection. And, you know, $50 on a $500 inspection is significant. If there's anyone interested in our corporate partnerships program, just contact us and we can enroll you in. You get a unique corporate card, a bit like a Bunnings card with your unique number on and your clients just quote it when they speak to us. And we retain that number at the end of the month. We just let you know how many of your clients are booked in with us and ask you to send us an invoice.
0: And I believe you also have a, a building and pest checklist that you're offering to listeners as well. We do,
2: yes. So that's um, I, I completed that and I've sent that into to you guys. So that building and pest checklist is just the top ten things that we think buyers specifically should be um, should be looking for when they're purchasing a property, commercial or residential. If you keep your eye out for these things, then you're three quarters of the way towards mitigating the risk, your risk in, in that purchase, I reckon.
0: All right, perfect. Well, if listeners want to go download that, they can uh, check that out at revolvecommercial.com.au forward slash BPC. That's short for Building and Pest Checklist. Or i also put the, the link in the show notes. Mate, so I have one last question for you. Where can the listeners go to contact you and find out more about your business?
2: Yeah, so you can grab us on the on our website at uh, rapidbuildinginspections.com.au dot com dot au, or you can just email us directly, and that's just commercial at rapidbuildinginspections.com.au. com And then um, obviously we, if you you jump on our website, there's our phone number there as well, it's 1300 407 341. But I reckon the best way to touch base with us is just commercial at rapidbuildinginspections and we'll be able to help you out.
0: Perfect, mate. Well, today's guest has been Daniel Watts. Cheers, buddy.
2: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Mish. Much
0: appreciated. All right. This has been Mish, Daniel, and Andrew Bean on the Revolve Commercial
1: Podcast. where wealth revolves around you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Don't forget to check out their private Facebook group, Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network.